Good morning. You guys should try preaching here because then you get to take your mask off for a little while. It's kind of, I feel really cool right here on my face now all of a sudden. I also wanted to thank you for those of you who uh, received a text message from me this week from a spammer. Can I just get a, raise your hand if you got a wrong, a fake text message from me this week. Wow. Uh, thank you for your letting me know. Somebody, I don't know how that happened. We still haven't quite figured it out, but we've protected everything that we know. Uh, and I didn't get hacked anywhere as far as I could see. But, but for those of you that aren't in the loop, some people got a text message. I apparently was visiting elderly people at the hospital and really needed iTunes cards for them. And I needed you to buy them, and then I would pay you back. So uh, that is, I, <laughs> just for future reference, I will never text or email you if I'm asking for something like that. I will call you on the phone or talk to you face-to-face. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, other than the fact there are a lot of unhappy seniors at the hospital who don't have their iTunes cards, I think it was a pretty, it was pretty okay event. Anyway, we're, we're moving, we're in Second Peter. We started last week in the first chapter. Remember, I, I talked to you about the fact that it was Peter's last words. This is the last thing. He knows he's got, his time is short. He's writing to these same people. And, and he's focusing on these foundational ideas uh, that he wants them to, to hold on to even after he's gone. And, and he talks initially about the gift that God gives, this reality that somehow by knowing God, this relational knowing, not just knowing about him, but living in a relationship with him through the Spirit, we can actually have the divine life flow through us. We can participate or share in the divine nature. It's, it's a, a lot for us to comprehend this idea. It's a different way of thinking. We think of a, of a relationship as me and you, and somehow in our relationship with God, we're connected in a deeper and more profound way. He says this is the gift from God, and, and that, that because of this, what we want to do is work with this. We want to make every effort to add to this gift, all these things, to our faith, goodness, knowledge, all these things that we want to work in our lives to train to, to, to work with the Spirit of God instead of against him. Well, into that context, we keep reading, and Peter starts to address some other issues that he thinks are really important, uh, starting in 116. And I don't know who's... Somebody's been sneaking in here every week and shrinking the text size in my Bible. Um, and I don't know who's been doing it, but if I catch you... I know, I know. It's almost like getting baptized up here to put on glasses in front of you guys. Um, Long story, but uh, I just want to read the word correctly, okay? So we're going to start in 1, chapter 16, 1, chapter 1, verse 16, and read through the end of chapter 2. And Peter says, We didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them, a, made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they're not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, an accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey an animal without speech who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is, is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for, quote, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they've escaped the corruption in the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Now that's one of the few times you get to read that verse in a sermon, let me tell you. Take these off now so that I can actually see what's important, right? There's a lot in this text. It's a lot of ground to cover. I had asked a few people to read, and they're like, I think I'll start with a shorter text. Uh, so I, I read it myself. That's why I had to pull out the glasses. But the first thing that I want to look at flows out of last week. Because last week, Peter said, by knowing God, and remember we talked about this, that word epigenosco, it's this relational knowing, by knowing God, that that we receive this gift of sharing in the divine nature, that somehow the divine life comes into us. So if, if we do that by knowing God, the question follows, how do we know God and truth? How do we know those things? The doorway to divine life is knowing God, so how do I do that? And not just intellectually. And so Peter's going on to tell his readers, first of all, about his own experience and how it relates to the words that God's spoken through the prophets in history. And in telling 
what he's been through. He highlights something that we're often in church kind of slow to talk about, and that is the reality of our experience. The reality of our experience. One of the things that the commentators tell us was that those who were false teachers in this area of Turkey uh, that Peter was writing to, that they, they were saying, you know, Peter and those guys, they're just making up stories. They're making it up. They're saying, well, what, what, what they're teaching is just these things that they've made up to elevate themselves. And that's why Peter says in verse 16, when, when we told you this, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories. We didn't follow made-up stories. But we were eyewitnesses. He, and he begins to tell about that experience. It's, we talked about that not long ago in, our, in a sermon series, the transfiguration up on the mountain, right, where Jesus turned into this glowing being. It's uh, from, from Mark chapter 9. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led them up to a high mountain, and there they were all alone. And then he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I love. Shut up, Peter. <laughs> Listen to him. Listen to him. And Peter says, you know, we didn't make this up. We saw it. We heard the voice. It happened. I was there. It was an experience I had. Now, we, we often struggle when it comes to God making sense of our experiences, right? And our feelings and the things we go through, the ideas that pop through our mind. And I, I grew up in a church being taught that you really have to, you have to be really careful with your feelings and your experiences, because they can lead you down a garden path. I was a part of a very conservative Christian denomination which highly valued the Bible, for which I'm completely grateful. And I agree. We've got to be careful with our experiences. But the tendency was, in my life growing up, was to totally ignore them, to leave them out, because they're, they're only meant to deceive me. I suddenly began to look down on people who depended on their experiences with God, because I knew the truth. And see, what I ended up doing subtly in, in wanting to elevate the truth of Scripture, which I do, I started forgetting to even realize that I'm a human being with experiences that Scripture speaks to. I've grown to realize that sometimes the two work hand in hand. <laughs> like not elevating Scripture over experience, but I'm not also going to totally ignore experience as I come to Scripture. I want the Scripture to help me understand my experience. And that's what Peter says, right? He says, the, the, he talks about the understanding from and of the text that comes to his experience. And we have the words of the prophets made even more certain, he says. When we look at this experience we had and we go back and we look at the text, we're like, oh my goodness, he is the son. This is exactly what has been prophesied. His experience was understood from the text. And his experience helped him understand the text. It's still the text where the truth is. What they saw on the mountain made sense as they looked at the prophets. It was an experience that they really couldn't understand. Like we, I don't think we get that. What you know, Moses and Elijah show up and Jesus is glowing so that you can't even look at him and they fall on their face. They think they're, they're scared to death. And then as they came back and reflected, they began to see the glory of God and the prophecies about Jesus. And, and it all started to make sense. See, the text 
gives understanding to our experience. Let me give you an example. The text, the scripture we have is clear that God loves me and you. Me and you. Let me point the right way as I say that. That God loves the world. The scripture is clear. You cannot read the Bible and miss the point that God, for God so loved the world, right? But if that's all you have of that, it, 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 it limits the reality of what you live. I told you a few weeks ago about a time in prayer when I just became aware of God's love for me. And, and I can't even really describe it. I hesitate to even talk about it much, but it, I just knew that even if I was a, a vegetable on life support in the hospital and could do nothing for God and couldn't think thoughts and couldn't do anything but lay there like a lump dependent on the machines, I knew that God would still treasure me and love me. That's the image that came to my head. And it was overwhelming to me. Now, it didn't change the truth of Scripture that God loves me at all. It didn't change the reality of what's true. But my understanding of the reality moved to a whole deeper level. See, what my experience as I read the text, those two things together actually made me know the truth in a, in a deeper way than just knowing about it. My experience isn't more important than the text. It's definitely not. It doesn't change the text of Scripture. It doesn't change what we've been taught. But it, it helps me appropriate it or actually ingest it on a deeper level if I'm using the two together. See, modern society sees us really often, and the church is the victim. We see us as thinking things. One guy, James Smith, who's a, a teacher at Calvin in the States, he, he says society sees us as brains on a stick, right? It's all about what we know and what we think, and the church is often seeing discipleship as just putting the right information into this computer I've got inside my skull, making sure I learn the right things. And that's vitally important, but I am more than my brain on a stick. I, I, I have emotions and experiences and feelings and, and, and relationships, and all those things form who I am. And what Peter's saying is our experience of him there, the text helped us see it and helped us to know it in a really profound way. You know, we, we, we know that. We know that we need this deeper kind of learning because we have things like on-the-job training. <laughs> Ever hear that? Uh, apprentices. You know, that, that's what happens. There's some things you can teach people in their head, but there's some things they have to physically actually do to learn how to do it. And, and, and I, I want to be clear on this because the, the relationship between the Scripture and our experience, I think, has gotten distorted some. And I don't want to go to the other way. I want to balance the two. But, but the text is the basis of knowledge, but it's often our experience of God and the forgiveness that he offers that helps us to actually grab it and hold it as something that we know in a relational way. And the reason the text is there is to keep calling us back to the fact that our quest for a relationship with God, that in our quest we don't really know what we need. That's why our feelings can deceive us. We think, can think this is a good way to go, and the text calls us back to the truth. It's how we practice surrendering to an outside authority, and that's really what Peter's doing. This is the word from God, he says, in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 1. He reminds us, above all, you must understand no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. It wasn't the prophet, the prophet just had an experience and wrote it down. He says, prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. And this is where we, what we believe about the scripture really matters. This is, we believe that somehow God inspired people to write down truth and, and, and to reveal who he is to us through the words on this page. It's, it's a guideline that, that, that we say it's living and it's active and it works, that he inspired the text that it's actually living, that we interact with it, that it challenges us. And, and the point that I'm making is it is the final authority. And people in the world that, that don't buy into Jesus at all have struggled with this, right? Because, and there's a good reason, because far too often we've misused Scripture. We've, we've used it to do things that, that um, aren't scriptural. I've got some pictures. I hope they're not too controversial, but I'm, I'm going to put one up there. Uh, on January 6th, there was a little incident in Washington, D.C., right? And you remember these guys that broke into the Capitol building? Well, what they did was they, they broke into the Capitol, and they got all the way into the Senate chambers. And when they got there, what fascinated me when I saw the video was that they, they started to pray in the Senate chambers. The first guy said this. He said, Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. I thought, okay, you've just beaten up cops. You've just broken through a barrier. You, you're, you, you've damaged property. And yet, Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. You see what they're doing? <laughs> they're trying to use Jesus in their own experience instead of letting their experience be shaped first by Jesus. He continued praying, divine, omnipotent, and omnipresent creator God, Thank you for the police officers who allowed us into the building. Well, on the video clip, not 30 seconds before the prayer was a police officer saying, you need to leave. You need to leave now. You need to leave now. And yet they're thanking God for their freedom to be there. Help. Thank you for letting us exercise our rights to allow us to send a message to all the tyrants, the communists, and the globalists that this is our nation, not theirs. I'm an American. <laughs> Okay, um, when we start defining ourselves too much by our national identity, we lose the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the one who says, love your enemies, right? So uh, there, there's been a lot of reasons that people don't give scripture the honor that it's due, and part of it is that we have distorted it. That we've done things in the name of him who said, love your enemies, lay down your lives in service, respect the authorities that God's put in place unless they call us to contravene the way of, of Jesus. And we've done things and appealed to scripture to support it. And so people say, I'm, I'm not trusting that book ever again. The problem is we're, we're, we're misusing the text. <laughs> and that's what Peter goes into because he, he's talking about these false teachers in Turkey. And he moves in modern day Turkey, not as Asia Minor then they called it. Uh, modern-day Turkey, and, and these false teachers are misusing the truth. And so I want to look next at how the truth gets distorted. He says in, in 2 verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. There will always be people that distort the truth, sometimes accidentally. I, I, I don't think that everybody that misuses scripture... I'm, I think I probably misuse it on a regular basis because of my lack of understanding. I think sometimes it's accidental. But he's saying some people will distort the truth in order to, to gain control and, and what they want. 
These are the people who are not drawing from divine life. And he begins to explain how you can identify them. First of all, they misconnect experience and text. Instead of letting the text shape and inform and and help them understand their experience, they, they use the text to endorse their experience. They begin to use it to justify what they actually want to do. They live shamefully, moving from a point of greed, it says in verses 2 and 3, and somehow they think that's okay. They don't let the teaching of the prophets and the words of Jesus correct their behaviors. They just go with what they want. In verse 19, it says they promise them, this is chapter 2, verse 19, they promise them freedom, which is a very biblical word, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. I had a person tell me years and years and years ago, they were making a decision that was not, I mean, in my understanding, it was really not what Jesus wanted them to do. And this person said to me, sitting in my office back there, they're not here, by the way, and you're not going to be able to figure out who they are because I'm not referencing that. But they said to me, I have to do this because God loves me and he just wants me happy. And, and I thought, okay, that is true. God loves you, and I think God does want you happy. I just think you've got to let him define what happy is. You've got to let the text inform what the love of God looks like and what happy looks like. See, there's a reason that, when I, when I heard that, I thought there's a reason we've taught people to ignore their feelings and their experiences because we get so distorted when we disconnect them from Scripture. But, but the reality is we, we have them. We all have them. We're not brains on a stick. And we need to go back and interpret them through Scripture. He says the people here are distorting Scripture. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says they're introducing destructive heresies. They're misinterpreting the truth that we have. These subtle twists of truth. And what we begin to see here is the other side of chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Remember what we covered last week, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowing of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he's given us his great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What he's saying, we have through knowing God, I've hit this point enough, you should have it. We have a way of actually living and sharing in the divine life and being pulled further and further away from the corruption from evil desires in the world. But in chapter two, we see the flip side of that. Look at the wording of chapter two, verse 20. If they have escaped, quote, the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, that's a reference back to chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. And are again entangled in it and overcome. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Now this, some of you are thinking, okay, that's challenging text there, Jeff. Does that say they can lose what they got? Once you get the gift, can you lose it? It raises all kinds of questions. Can you turn away from the gift that God has given to you once you've received it? Well, I'm not going to answer that question for you. I don't think you can. (laughs) But I'm not going to argue it because I don't think I can convince you beyond a shadow of a doubt. But I do want to focus on one phrase. He says in verse 21, it would have been better for them had they never gotten, tasted it, had they never understood this, than to see it and and then reject it or to turn away from it. I don't think he's saying that they can lose their salvation, but I think he's saying you can know and receive the gift of God and not participate in the divine nature. You, cannot, you can know and yet turn away from that sharing 
We talked last week about the effort that you add to surrender to the divine life. You can know God and still not surrender to his grace, still not, what we talked about last week, about training ourselves to work with the spirit of God. And as you do that, what that does, even though you've known the truth, is it keeps the driver in your, the car of your life focused on those corrupt desires of the evil world. They, they corrupt you. You don't draw from the divine life, and your, and your habits revert to the basest instincts that, that, that you've grown up with your whole life. That's why he talks about at one point that, you know, they're like, they're like senseless animals who just return to instinct. And later on he says, you know, they're like the, the dog that you clean him up and he goes back and, or the dog vomits and he eats his vomit. The pig, you clean him up and he goes back and he wallows in the mud. That's what's happening here. Those people have, have heard of the gift and know, and yet they don't surrender to that divine life. And he says it's worse you know that the divine life is offered and you don't surrender to it, then your life bears that fruit of death and brokenness over and over and over again. And that kind of living will reap what is sown. And Peter, in, in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, he gives three examples. I just want to touch on these so you know why they're there. Three stories. The first one, he says, it's about the angels who were not, when they sinned, God, God took them captive and held them for punishment on the day of judgment. Now, where is that in the Bible? It's, it's not in the Bible. It's in a Jewish book called First Enoch. And, you know, is Peter quoting a book that's not in the Bible? Yes, he is. And is Peter quoting it as if it's true? Yes, he is. And there's a lot of worms that come out of that can. But I'm, not, I'm just letting them out so you can figure it out later. Uh, <laughs> but Peter is saying that that's one of the stories that his listeners would know, and he's referencing that. The second was from Noah and the Flood. And the third was from Lot being saved out of Sodom. The point is that, that if you continue to live a, a, apart from that divine life, that destruction and judgment comes. That's what it is. And, and as you live that way, it repeatedly leads to bad fruit that's seen in the false teachers. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 19, over and over, it talks about what these teachers look like. They're driven by their evil desires instead of drawing from the divine life, and it says their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight, blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you, eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. They may not be very good at drawing from the divine life, but man, they're good at being greedy. They've left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam. You remember Balaam? Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament in Numbers, I think, 22, around that... He's riding on a donkey because the king of Moab has, wants him to curse the Israelites. And God says, you go, but you say what I say, but he's going to curse them anyway, and the donkey teaches him. See, once again, this beast knows more than Balaam. You can look up that story in, in, in Numbers 22. Then he says, I love these descriptors. They are springs without water. They're mists driven by a storm. They mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. You see, what he's saying is the fruit that comes from that kind of life, it looks like freedom, but it's not. He says that. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. And, and what I want you to see in this text, the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, Peter's drawing two images here. One is, is living in this relational knowledge with God and drawing from divine life and making every effort to add to that. The other is, is doing your own thing. And the difference is how they relate the scripture and their experience. These people 
will have the experience of divine life and let Scripture feed it and inform it and teach it. These people will take their experience that they want and mold Scripture to fit what they want. It's a very dangerous way of living over here. So the question for us is, and I've always wanted to say this in a sermon, how, how do we make sure that we're staying away from vomit and mud? Never had vomit underlined in a sermon ever, but I think today was the day, right? There's these two pathways, these two ways of living in the world, both relating to our own experiences and our feelings and our emotions and the things we go through and the text and how the two interrelate. This one, one seeks its own way. It wants to define its experiences by the text. Okay, tell me I, this is right. I'm going to twist the text to do what I want. I'm going to take a verse out. And I'm going to use it. One draws from the divine life and seeks to surrender its experience to what the text teaches. How do we make sure we live out the right choice? First, it's obvious. We have to make sure we're balancing Scripture and experience. And in and, and my life growing up, Scripture was up here and experience was down here, right? And I, I want to come more to right here where, yeah, Scripture's still the authority, but my experience helps me understand Scripture. Peter's telling them of his experience. He's saying, because of this experience, I know this is true. It's helped me understand the truth that the prophets have made. And, and the tendency is to slide one way or the other. Jesus talked to the Pharisees back in John 5. We, we can be these people that focus on the text and deny any kind of emotion, relational experience, all that kind of stuff. And he says to the Pharisees, you diligently study the scriptures. You guys know them. Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. We see this all the time when people use the scripture to either elevate themselves or to tear down others, to keep people away from the love and grace of God instead of opening up a door to the love and grace of God through the scripture. See, the, the, the world is full of Christians who've used the Bible to destroy more than to present Jesus, who's, who's the living word. Years ago when I came here at the Blue Moose, they, they, uh, I think it was Thursday evenings, Wes started a thing called the Philosopher's Cafe. And it was, uh, they would have a question, a, a philosophical question. It was really about life, you know, what, is this right or wrong, or, or what should you do in this situation? Um, Hillary Kennedy, Kennedy moderated it. She did a great job. But I loved it because it was a bunch of people that were actually asking big questions about life, and, and um, they made a space for me. Sometimes Christians are relegated, thinking you don't have anything to say, but they made a space for me to engage with them around that from my perspective. But one night, one of the ladies in the group said, as a part of our discussion, she said, I'm terrified because my daughter has decided she wants to go to Cape and Ray Harbor Bible School. And I said to her, I said, why would you be terrified about your daughter studying the Bible. And she, full of genuine honesty, said, because every evil thing that I can think of in the history of the world, there have been people in it using biblical text to support what they were doing. Right? Uh, apartheid. Slavery. Uh, all these different things that had happened that she knew of in history and people that had supported it had drawn script. Now, she didn't, she didn't understand what scripture was. But I realized for the first time, oh my goodness, there are a lot of people that are misdorting, they're distorting scripture, mis, mis, misinterpreting it, using it to support things that don't actually amplify the character of Jesus. 
So, so one side is here that we, we focus so much on Scripture and deny the reality of experience and letting the two work together. And we become, we, we just interpret without it being attached to real life. The other way is also there too, like I talked about the person who God loves me and wants me happy, where our experience helps, drives our interpretation of Scripture. We can go either way. We need to balance those two and let the two work together. One of the best ways to do that is relationships. Relationships. If you're living in relationships with other believers and you're interacting about your own experiences and scripture, that helps you to keep those two in balance. Because you may not see where you're going down a wrong path, but they will because they're not you. That's why relationships are so important. There's this beauty of the other perspective and the challenge of those who disagree. I was just talking with with Kyle this morning saying, you know, we, we have a wide spectrum of interpretation as far as it comes to masks and vaccines and all that. But, but what, let me just make this, I, I very rarely say this is the official position of Grace Baptist Church, but the official position of Grace Baptist Church is you've got to love each other regardless of what you think. And not love each other to convince each other. you just got to love each other. And lay down your life for the person that thinks differently than you. And serve alongside them. Right? We need these relationships and these different, we need them. We, we seem to think the goal is to get to a place where everybody thinks and acts just like us. Well, that's a problem. I'm, I'm going, that's not in my notes at all. But the reason relationships are so important is that it helps us examine the fruits of our theology. It helps us examine the fruits of our theology. Peter spent this time describing these false teachers. He's saying, they, just look at the fruit, guys. He learned well. His teacher said to him in, in Matthew 7, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. The people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And he said, we often do this with others. We can look at their fruit, and we see that there's something off there. But guess what? Scripture calls us to do it to ourselves. Check my own fruit. Evaluate the fruit of my own theology. Galatians 5, 22, 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, this is the litmus test of your theology. If you're surrendering to the Spirit, if you're making every effort to add these things, if you've received the gift and you're allowing divine life to flow through you, guess what you should see coming out the other side? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're living in today's society, growing in fear every day about the bad things that are going to happen, fear's not in that list. Right? If you're angry at those people that think differently than you and do different things, if you're angry at the world that's trying to shut down the church, we're, anger's not in that list. We, we have to, relationally and in our own lives, evaluate the fruits of our theology. And we need a community around us to do that. A life filled with the Spirit exhibits the fruits of the Spirit. And I, I'll say it. I I'm, I'm sometimes hate to make hard and fast statements because then I regret them later, but this is, this is exactly as I wrote it. I don't care how long you've been in church or how much Bible or theology you know. If you are not producing in some degree and hopefully in a growing degree the fruits of the Spirit, 
If your life is not looking more like Jesus, something is out of line. Now, I'm not saying you're perfect and you've got it all together. But, but if you're not finding over 10 years that your default is going more toward love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and less toward fear, anger, frustration, then, then something's wrong about what you're thinking and, and, and your understanding of who Jesus is and the gift that he's given you. Peter says that if there isn't this participation in the divine nature, then our lives are driven by the, the, the desires of the world. And just like 222 we're like a dog who goes back to his vomit or a pig that wallows in the mud. The, the, those instincts and those patterns just keep going. We've got a dog, a little white dog, and we love him. I love him most of the time. <laughs> uh, but he, we also have a dirt patch in our backyard, and especially during the hot weather, he will go out, and when he comes in, he's kind of beigey gray because he just rolls in the dirt, and he carries, yeah, he comes in and shakes, and you see, it's like pig pen on the peanuts. Have you ever seen that? That's just what he does, and we, we're trying to get him to stop it, and we scrub him down sometimes, and then we just complain about it most of the time. But that's, his, that's what he does. He, that's his instinct. That's, that's what's driving him. And, and if, unless we start drawing from the divine life and beginning to train to live differently and let the fruit of the Spirit... See, what, what God wants is us to be surrendered to him so that our instincts can change. He wants us to surrender our habits to divine life. That's where he started in last week's text where he talks about through these he's given us his great and precious promises, right? Verses 4 to 7. So that we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, he says, make every effort. Start training yourself to live differently. Practice the fruits of the Spirit even when you don't feel like it. That's when you're letting your experience surrender to the text. We need to start training our bodies to surrender our habits to divine life. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Okay, how do I do this, Jeff? Let me just give you this. As, this, this is as clear as I can make it. I tried to spell it out. How can I train myself to be more like God? How can I receive the gift and... And do that first thing you need to do is, is admit the truth about your current actions. Admit it. I'm really angry. I'm frustrated. I'm jealous. I'm afraid. Admit the truth. And then hold that up to God and say, okay, I, I need you to fix this. I need to depend on your love and your grace to help me react differently. And then you begin to do those things. That off-the-spot training we talked about last week about practicing those fruits of the spirits even when you don't feel like it or, or just on a habit. You know, if you always have to have your way, then, then practice letting somebody else have their way. Where are we going for dinner? And you know exactly where you want to go. Let them win. And then guess what? In the crunch time, when it's a real issue, you've practiced your training to work with the Spirit of God instead of always getting your own way. And then bring a circle, a couple of people around you. Ask God and the people around you to help you in this process. And when you fail, because you will, go back to the gift. God, I, here it is. I've admitted the truth of my failure. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Help me practice differently. Oh, I've run over. Sorry, I'm long. But last analogy here. <laughs> 
what I'm describing in those last couple minutes is church. This is church. This is what we do. You see, church is the place where God brings you. And I'm talking about our physical location when we are together. He brings you here to remind you of the truth and to put you next to people that are going to love you and irritate you both at the same time. Because it's, it's, it's reminding you of the truth and giving you a context, a relational context to work it out, to be loved and forgiven and to love and forgive. That's why it's important, I think, very important to have this as a rhythm in your life where you're connecting, where you're involved in relationships, where you're surrendering yourself to the truth. It's, it's like I said last week, once a girl is on my basketball team, she's on the team, she's there, but there's this training process and this coming to practice every day where we work on these things and remember what it is we want to do and train our bodies to do it and do it as a team where we love each other and hold each other up. Those kind of things, that's what church is. It's not a basketball game where you go and you watch something spiritual happen. It's, it's a game that you go and you play in. You're, you're, this life, this is, this is practice for life where you hear the scripture and surrender to it and, and you go away and you begin to train and, tra- and practice and say, okay, God, here I am. Here's where I messed up. Help me to change. I'm going to practice this. Help me to change. And you do okay, you do okay, you do okay, you fail. Okay, God, I did it again. And there's people around you so that when you don't see your failures, they lovingly tell you, hey, you're missing the boat there. That's church. That's what it needs to be. And we're, we're far, I think our culture has gotten far away from that, and it's hard for us to get back. But we're going we're gonna to work our way back, right? Are we? Okay. There's a, Carrie, Carrie Larson answered. That's a surprise. It's a surprise that Carrie would be excited about that. Church is this place that puts us in proximity with the truth and other Christ followers, and that shapes us. It's God's way of helping us to grow to be like Jesus, to share in the divine nature and to let the life of God flow in us, to us, and through us to the rest of the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for your truth. We we want to live a whole life faith, one that's not just about what we know, but it's also about what we do, how we feel, our, our gut reactions to situations. We want them to be transformed by your truth. And it's, it's a bigger process, a bigger test, a bigger endeavor than we are able to do on our own, for sure. Thank you for bringing us together with other believers. Thank you for centering us around your word, which is so important to us as we, we grow in our knowledge of you. But help us to, to live fully to surrender our lives to your truth, to let the life of God flow through us to others. Help us as we seek in the fall to kind of reconnect relationships with each other in a room with an actual face across from us. Help us, God, to to share the life of God with each other and to, to grow into who you're making us to be so that those fruits of the Spirit are ever more evident in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. These, um, these last two sermons, I'll just be honest. I feel like I'm trying to explain something I don't even get fully myself. But, but what gives me hope is, and I, I think I learned this a while ago, is this event is not all that we have. It's not like you just had to learn something today and take it out and apply it. We are opening up our eyes in wonder to the glory of God. We're soaking ourselves in what he's saying and thinking. We're living in relationship with each other. And that will continue if you'll let it, and God will work in it. I keep coming back to Philippians 1. I should put these glasses on again, darn it. 
One day I won't need those anymore. I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And my hope for you is that you can build your life upon his love and rest in the fact that he's going to finish what he's doing in you as you are open to him. Amen.